Will you stand with me for our gospel reading? From the gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went up to the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The gospel of the Lord. You You may be seated. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. So great to be with you. Um, I want to start by uh, giving a shout out to um, some special people that worked really hard this weekend. You notice, you may notice it looks a little kind of cleaner in here today, and that's because we were able to hang the speakers and not put them on our um, stands. And Britton and Tyler worked like tirelessly yesterday on that. And I just want to say thank you so much. I was there too, but I kind of just stood around and said, do you guys need me to go to the hardware store or something? Um, but, uh, but they did such a great job with that. So um, we have, just so you know, we've got a few things. We're working on moving to an in-ear monitor system that's just about ready to go. I don't know. Did you guys use that today? Yeah. And so it cleans up the monitors down here. We don't have those and um, helps everything, kind of helping us create get rid of any distractions and different things like that that would uh, help us moving forward. And I also just want to, just so you guys know, um, these different improvements that we've been able to do, um, uh, those guys have been doing these things out of their pocket. And so that has been such a blessing, and we're just incredibly thankful for that. And so I just want to say thank you to those guys for that as well. Um, Today, we're going to continue. We're walking through this um, season after Epiphany, and it is inspiring us and leading us towards this idea of the call of God going out into all of the world. Um, We do not have a faith that just is about worship on Sunday mornings. We don't just have a faith that's about individual devotion, not just about individual spiritual formation. But it is actually about, and it's not even just about a group of people gathering together and getting to know each other really well and growing together. There's always an outward impulse to our faith always. Um, So we're continuing in this series, and we've got three texts today that I'm going to move through fairly quickly and looking at these different stories and these different texts today. The first one is in Nehemiah, which is a really odd passage when we first read it, because what it looks like is it looks like somebody gets up and reads the Bible, and then they preach about the Bible, and then everyone starts crying. Basically what happens every Sunday here, right? Um, But what's going on in this text? Somebody they read the scripture, they preach, and then there's just, everybody starts crying. It's just such an odd text to read in isolation for us this morning. Well, the book of Nehemiah was written during this time, or was this story happened during this time, when there had been, um, the Babylonians had conquered Jerusalem. 
and they had destroyed the temple. And what they did, and we talked about this with empires before, they would take a bunch of people out of their land and go and either take them back to Babylon or they would take them other places, okay? And so they had been in exile. They'd been far away from the temple. Then 50 years later, some Israelites began returning to the land. So some were allowed to come back to their home, back to their land. And they began to rebuild the temple. So they built this place where heaven and earth meet, this place where God lives among his people. They would rebuild that. And they also began to rebuild the community around the temple. The community was rebuilt. And then specifically Nehemiah, and if you, if you want to, the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah used to be one book. They were one book that was read together. They kind of got split up over time, but those two are supposed to be read together. And so specifically Nehemiah's job is to rebuild the walls of the temple. Okay, so that's his goal and, and what he's doing. And toward the end of Nehemiah, we have this story where the wall has been rebuilt. The people gather around the water gate, which has nothing to do with Richard Nixon. They gather around this water gate, the gate of the water, okay? And the law is brought into the square and it's red. This is such a profound thing because there are people in exile. The temple, the walls have been rebuilt and they're now proclaiming the word of God. Something new is happening. Something new is stirring The law was the source of people's theological and cultural identity. So the law, God's word, God speaking to them who they are, it was everything to them. It's who they are as the people of God is based on the law, their core of their being. And in many ways in the exile, that had been shut away. Their identity had been lost. They'd been in foreign lands for so long. They're being reminded of their identity. And they have a response to cry. We'll talk about that in a minute, but the response to cry is this conviction of we've forgotten our identity. We haven't lived up to this. This was a thing that God called us to do and we're not this and our generations past have not been this. But then they're commanded to celebrate. They're told, don't, don't grieve about this, celebrate. The word of the Lord has been preached and called to specifically celebrate by drinking wine. Somebody say Amen. Little historical note here, this story represents a shift in Judaism. So from this point forward, Judaism had become, originally was a uh, religion centered on the temple. The temple was everything, okay? And it still continued to be that way in a lot of ways, but it was centered on the temple. And then here we see a shift to where Judaism becomes focused, not just on the temple, but on the law of God, on the word of God, on the proclamation of God. This takes us, this idea takes us back to creation to the book of Genesis, when God speaks, things happen. That God speaks things into being and stuff is created, stuff happens, good things happen. So when, when God's word is preached, so even if we stand up here and we just, even if we stand up and we read the, the word of God with no feeling, <laughs> we stand up here and we read the word of God and it's dry and you're having a hard time staying awake, the fact that it's been preached, the fact that it's been proclaimed, it's doing something in the world. Okay. Last year, we rearranged our service order here at Sacrament to some of you, that's all you've known here at Sacrament, but to better reflect a more traditional pattern of worship. I grew up in a um, churches where the service consisted mostly of, we started with music, we had some announcements and some greeting time, and that was halftime, right? It was a break in the service. And then we had the sermon. And that was kind of the order of service. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, that's been so many churches for so many generations. But 
As I jumped back into the historic church, I began to find that there are reasons why much of the church, especially in early history, but much of the church throughout history has structured its gatherings in a very particular way, very intentional way. And it's not pragmatic. Sometimes growing up in evangelical traditions, we tend to think pragmatically first. So we think what is like, what's gonna capture people's attention the best? What's gonna kind of, you know, speak to them the best? Well, the historic church just thought in terms of what service order is going to form people. What's it doing inside of them as they do it, as they practice it? You know that any habit that you do over and over again, whether you recognize it or not, actually changes you. Like it changes who you are, okay? So we began to look at this historic pattern. So in the historic pattern, we don't just begin with a casual greeting. When I used to be a music leader, um, it was, hey, everybody, how's it going? How was your week this week? Yeah, doing good. It's all stand up if you can, right? I was kind of hippie back then, right? Stand up if you can, <laughs> kind of like a coffee shop. But, but we've chosen not to really begin that way. And it's not a formality issue, but it's we begin with a call to worship. Like, here's why we're here this morning. Here's why we've gathered. Let's remind ourselves why we're here today. We identify what we're doing. We call our minds and our bodies to the moment at hand that we sing songs then after that of praise, of adoration, of salvation history. Like there's a reason for that. We're not entertaining ourselves or stirring up our affections. That's not our intention. Our intention is that we're singing songs of praise to God. Then we pray the prayer of the church for the day together. We bind our hearts together with this community and the community without the world, throughout the world. Then we hear the word of the Lord. And I have to say how impressed I am. I, I had a lot of people tell me when I, when I said, hey, we're gonna shift to reading all three texts on Sunday mornings fully. And I told some people outside of this community, some of my pastor friends, and they'd go, there's no way you're gonna get away with that. People are gonna fall asleep and they're not gonna be interested in this and they're gonna be bored to tears. And I'm impressed with your attention span. <laughs> you guys seem to have responded well to this. I've been to churches where the scripture will be read and everybody's just cringing, waiting for it to be over, right? And that's really sad because in our culture, we don't sit well and we don't hear well. We don't listen well, do we? Um, especially sacred scripture, sometimes our instinct, we don't mean to do this, but we think it's like so archaic and outdated that we kind of tune out. All of us do that. Don't feel bad if you do that. That's kind of part of it. But notice in this passage, they rejoice at the reading of the word of God. They're commanded to rejoice. Why? Because God has spoken to us. He didn't have to do that, but God spoke to us. And that's something to celebrate. He's given us an identity with his word. He's given us purpose. He's given us mission. And that's worth drinking wine about, the scripture says. <laughs> and then there was an interpretation. So there was preaching that happened here. So the word of the Lord is read, but there's this sense of now we're going to bridge that. We're gonna to talk to you about what happened in this text. We're gonna to talk to you about how it was originally given and there's some interpretation here. The sermon is three things. Okay, I wanna unpack this for you. First of all, sermons are always liturgical. Now, what do we mean by that? It means it always happens as part of worship. So we're not giving a TED talk on Sunday mornings. It's nothing wrong with the TED talk. It's wonderful. There's not, we're not even really giving a teaching even though that's great and there's a place for that and it's totally appropriate. But it's liturgical in the sense that ser the sermon is part of worship. Have you ever thought about the sermon and the reading of the word of God as actually part of our worship? That we're participating in this. That's why I loved, I grew up in the black church. And when you preach, it's not, the preacher is not the only one preaching. 
at that moment, right? That there is a call and there is a response. There is a participation in this reality. This is a moment of worship. We're not just hearing intellectual content here. <laughs> this is, we are worshiping in this moment. So preaching always happens in a congregation of people. Second of all, preaching is exegetical. That's a, man, it's a big, all these are really big theological words, but exegetical is this idea of we read the text and we unpack it. We look at what was the original intention, like, like what do these words mean and how might they hit us differently? How does, um, how does this, what does this word mean? How does it translate? What genre of literature are we looking at? So it's liturgical, it's exegetical, and then it's prophetic. Prophetic means it speaks to us today and calls us to action in joining Christ's work in the world. So the scriptures that we read, somehow the church has believed this, and I know it's strange, and it's not anywhere else in our culture. The church has somehow believed that these texts that were written often thousands of years ago, hundreds of years ago, no, thousands of years ago, <laughs> are somehow also active, that they're moving, that they're, they're alive somehow. What? They are. So there's this prophetic action of, we are now called to participate in this story, okay? So then we move from the sermon and we move to the creed and the creed recenters us. So you've heard me say this a lot, but it seeks to provide anchoring. So centering, if the sermon has strayed away from the historic faith, the creed says, oh, come on back. <laughs> it pulls us back to our center. And then after the reading of scripture, the sermon and the creed, the belief has historically been that, okay, we've heard the word of the Lord. We've heard it unpacked for us and interpreted and preached to us. We have now heard our historic faith. Our faith is at its highest level right now. <laughs> like we believe in this God at this moment. Even if we struggle with it, even if we wrestle with it, it's at this moment we have proclaimed our faith. We've raised our faith. We go, let's pray now. <laughs> let's offer the prayers for the world. So we pray the prayers of the people in that moment. The, lo the Lord, the God is the only one who can make broken things right. And then we share grace and peace with others. This isn't just Southern hospitality. This isn't just niceness where we turn to one another. How y'all doing? Grace and peace, right? No, this is a communal event. This is we share with others and with the world this grace that we've experienced, this peace that we've experienced. So prayer and sharing with others always goes together. We pray to God and we share with others. They're always connected. Historically, if there was a dispute between any members of the congregation, that grace and peace time is where you dealt with that, where you handled that. We'd go to somebody and go, man, I missed it. And part of that is we're getting ready to go to the table. So we want to repair these relationships and where it's been broken right now before we go to the table. And then the most important moment in our gathering is when we receive Eucharist together. We reenact the story of Christ's death. We thank God for this meal. After we receive it, we thank God for the meal. And then we're sent into a broken and hurting world to be the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. The sending is just as much a part of worship as anything else. I said it earlier, but it's not a dismissal. It's not a, hey, everybody, all right, go, quickest one to lunch, you know, whatever. Um, or let's tear down everything real quick. Great, we're done. Let's go tear down everything. No, we're being sent into the world, right? It's a beautiful thing. That change in our worship structure has changed me. It's affected me as a pastor. Um, now, when we read scripture, I approach it differently. It's not setting up the sermon, 
Scripture does not set the stage for the word of God so that I can dig through archaic texts and tell you something inspirational. It is the word of God. And I'm simply called to point to it. In Nehemiah, the Torah is read and the people cry. And we don't know exactly why they cry. It may be that they've realized that they failed to live up to it. They've generations past have failed to live up to it. But there is this sense every time we hear God's word that it challenges us, that it reads our mail, <laughs> that it, it reveals things. It reveals the places where we failed to live up to this reality. And yet Nehemiah says that the law shouldn't be a cause for grieving, but a cause for rejoicing. God has spoken to his people. And as Christians, this takes on a whole nother level, a whole nother component to us because we realize that God then spoke a final word in the flesh, the word of God, Jesus Christ. So now when we talk about the word of God, the first thing we always mean is Jesus. Okay? He is the word of God. That's what John's gospel says. He is the word of God. Bible is the word about the word. So it is the word of God, but it's the word about the word. Preaching is the word about the word about the word. Okay, we won't go into all that. But. but Nehemiah then says, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, amen, and send portions of them for them, for those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So we celebrate the word of God and it leads us to share the celebration. It leads us to share, we've been invited. So now we share the invitation. We have participated in this beautiful thing. And now we invite others who do not know of the celebration. We celebrate with joy. So as we have stepped into this new year, I wonder in what ways might we begin to tune our ears to God's word more intentionally? How might we see that this joy of God's word is not just something that we ought to do, but it's something that ought to be spread, an invitation that ought to go out into all the world. Then our Corinthians text today, um, I mentioned that the word of the Lord is read liturgically. The word uh, liturgy just means the work of the people. You may not think about it that way, but liturgy is something that's done in community. It's something that the people do together, okay? We worship together. When reading this passage in 1 Corinthians 12, I've heard so many sermons about the different parts of the body and all the different spiritual gifts. I told you that my first sermon that I ever preached when I was 12 years old in my youth group was all about identifying all the spiritual gifts with all the parts of the body, okay? And, and I remember I, it went way too long. I had like an hour and a half worth of notes prepared and they gave me like 15 minutes or something like that. And, uh, and I got up and, and I remember I had the, the, one of the main ones that I remember, like the, the brain was like the theologians and like the eyes were like the prophets and the tongue is like the preachers. And then the butt was the encouragers because whenever you fall down, they cushion you, right? So I've heard so many like sermons, preached so many sermons about this and it's great. But, but I want us to think for a second about how radical Paul's words are in this culture and in our culture. Throughout human history, people have been primarily defined by their tribal identities, okay? by their nationality, by their skin color, by their socioeconomic class, by their caste, by their feudal position, by their skills, by their gifts, by their talents. People have been defined by all these different ways. The church is this place where we are able to say with Paul, all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. 
For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. In his context, Paul is saying Jews and Greeks are part of one body, one faith and one baptism. This was radical in the first century that your tribal identities, your ethnicities, that is no longer your primary identification. It is now being part of this one body. Also slaves and free are part of one body. That was radical. Some people get upset because the New Testament doesn't seem to condemn slavery as insistently as we'd like it to be. But if you look close enough, the signposts are all there. The fact that they're saying that slaves and free are part of the same body is revolutionary. And he also says, don't value some gifts over other gifts, all part of the same body. The number one source of conflict in the earliest church was the conflict between Jew and Gentile. So there was this question of how do we get Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians to get to the point where they can sit down and actually even have a meal together because their identities are so different. How about slave and free? In fact, in the book of Acts, we see that even among the Jews, there was this conflict over um, whether the widows of the Greek-speaking Jews were getting as much care as the widows of the Hebrew-speaking Jews, okay? So these aren't even Gentiles and Jews. These are two different groups of Jewish people, some Hebrew-speaking, some Greek-speaking, and the Greek-speaking ones are going, our widows are not taken care of enough. There's already division and splitting that's going on in this early church over tribal identities. And I can imagine these moments of heated debate where someone who is a slave speaks to a fellow Christian who's like a free free person, a nobleman even, and says, you don't see this faith through the lens of my experience. You don't get it. You don't understand what I've been through. You don't understand that my identity has always been wrapped up in the fact that my father abandoned me on a trash heap. And the only person who would rescue me (laughs) was one who thought I would give them a profit if I served as their slave. And yet this is what this, how this faith has changed me. There were moments when the churches believed that some voices were being heard louder than other voices. Some experiences valued over others. So there was a division where some people were saying that, and in Paul's context specifically, there were some Christians who were saying that we're part of the spiritual group we've had a little bit more of a better experience, a better understanding, we're more spiritual, whereas these other Christians are not. They haven't experienced what we have. This may have been based on certain gifts. It's, it's fine, it's my background. It's, I, like having the, I like having rap in the background of preaching. But Paul says this, but God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. I can't imagine a better testimony for the church in our world today, a world that is so polarized, to say we are the people of a new identity. We are the people who listen to the marginalized voices. We are the people who, when somebody suffers, we suffer with them. We are the people who, when somebody's honored, we celebrate with them. That's the church. That's who we are. We are called to live a better word than the fragmented words of our world. In the body of Christ, those places that would be deemed as lesser by society, voices that have been pushed down and ignored are actually treated with special honor in the church. 
For Paul, that meant the Gentile and the slave and those who are not seen as spiritual insiders. Paul is saying those who have been marginalized are now treated with special honor. Though have been silenced, they are being listened to. All have been given a new identity that surpasses our previous identities. I don't know about you, but this sounds a lot like Jesus when he says the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Imagine that, Paul sounds a lot like Jesus. If the church is to be a community that loves the least, the last and the lost, for Paul, this starts with us. This starts with our community. Who in our community are the marginalized voices and how are they treated with special honor? What does that look like? If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. I, I was struck this, idea, um, this week by this idea of the one body in reading an article about what's going on um, with the church in China. Some of you may have seen that. I posted this on the congregation page. But um, when I was little, we heard awful stories about communist China and the persecution of Christians. Uh, maybe you did too. I know I'm a little older than most of you in here. But um, we had friends who smuggled Bibles into China. That was a thing, you know, that you smuggled Bibles into China. And it was a consistent source of prayer for us, the persecution of Christians. But over the past 20 years or so, it seems like it had gotten better, Okay. Um, if you look at kind of how things were going over there, the underground church continued to grow and it grew to the point where basically the communist party said, we can't control this anymore. So we have to sanction it. We have to say that there is an official way to be Christian in the church. So they allowed Catholicism and Protestantism as two of the official kind of religions that you could join in China. Um, so they legalized it. They created official churches. They even tolerated underground churches. There weren't um, as many arrests that were happening because of underground church practices. When Ashley and I were in China in 2007, we visited one of the official churches. And I was really skeptical. I was thinking, this is gonna be all propaganda. It's official government one. Um, but it, it actually was very distinctly Christian. I was watching very closely. And I think part of the reason for that is they realized we can't really control this. It's, it's exploding. And so it was a very distinctly Christian kind of experience. But it turns out that all of this past 20 years may have been part of a bigger plan by the government to try to blend Christianity with the Chinese Communist Party. Um, the nation has recently begun jailing pastors, closing churches, both official and unofficial churches. There's now a ban on minors from joining churches, like kids that are younger so that they don't grow up in the faith. Um, and they're writing, the government is writing a translation of the Bible that better fits with the Chinese Communist Party, right? Can see how this patriotism and Christianity have blended so significantly. And I know every time we hear something in the news around the world now, we have to think of it. We have to try to put it in one of our partisan filters. So whatever your perspective is, you have to like hear it and go, okay, well, am I supposed to be on this side or on this side of this? This is one of these stories that I think every Christian should be grieved over. No matter your political perspectives or your thought on China or whatever, the, the suppression of religious freedom in this community, and it's not just Christians, that's what's most obvious, but it's also Islam and several different other religions. Um, they're taking down crosses, they're putting up Chinese flags in their places. Um, the church in China is suffering. And I thought about this, if we are really one body, then that means that as the church in China suffers, we suffer too. And yet, if you notice, the difference in the Christian ethic, which is different from every other group wrestling with power dynamics, the Christian response is turn the other cheek. 
It's walk the extra mile. We don't, we're not a people who scrap and fight for authority and influence. Now, I know we do that sometimes, unfortunately, but that's not our calling because we believe that our suffering and our self-giving is actually our best witness, if we can believe that. It's not to fight and to dominate and to scrap for power, but it's self-giving and it's actually the suffering that we experience that becomes our best witness in the world. Did you know that there were no church growth strategies in the early church? Or no church growth strategies. There were no, um, the church grew exponentially, but there were no strategies for evangelism. There was no, hey, if you do these five things, then you can get more people to be Christians. No. Do you know why the church grew? People were drawn by how they loved one another and how they suffered for their faith. People were drawn to that. That was the best witness. So I think this raises two questions. First of all, how often do we find ourselves battling for influence in the world when we are called to treat the less presentable parts with special honor, when we are called to self-giving? Second of all, how are we treating the least of these in our midst? I think those both raise out of this text. And then finally, our last text, Luke 4, 14 through 21. Here we see Jesus's proclamation of his mission. So Jesus is in the synagogue. It says this was as his custom was. So he just came to church. He went to the synagogue, the equivalent of church at that time. He was on the schedule to do the scripture reading that Sunday, right? So David Wally had put him on the schedule as a color-coded kind of thing. He saw it, he remembered that morning and he showed up and it was his turn to read. And he was assigned a reading from the prophet Isaiah. Christian worship and that pattern that we just talked about was modeled after Jewish synagogue worship. Okay, so this thing that we're part of is even older than the church, this form of worship is. They had a lectionary. They had a pattern of readings that they read each week. This passage is a little bit like meta for us because you could say Jesus had both the Old Testament and the gospel reading that morning. Think about it for just a minute. It's funnier than you think it is. Jesus had the Old Testament and the gospel reading because he's the gospel reading. All right. But Jesus at this time had already begun making a name for himself, all right? And we can imagine that Jesus had a powerful presence wherever he went. So he reads the word of the prophet and it's a passage about the mission of Israel. It's one that many believe would be embodied in a future Messiah. God has anointed Israel to preach the good news to the poor, to release the captives, to give sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which the year of the Lord's favor was this year where debts were released. He gives, so Jesus reads this passage, he gives the scroll to the attendant and then he sits down and it says everybody's watching him. So he must've read it with such power and such conviction that everybody's going, who is that guy? And he says this, he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is controversial because what Jesus says here is this scripture that I just read, it's happening in me. That's how this thing is being fulfilled. Jesus is saying, I am the embodiment of who Israel has always been called to be. I am God's kingdom come. I am the one bringing healing, forgiveness and freedom to the world. Notice that Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus and Christians believe that, that this thing that Isaiah was proclaiming and saying would happen was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And yet what's difficult about it is we don't see it fully, do we? It's not, there's not always good news for the poor. 
There's not always freedom for those who are captive. What do we do with that? This is what theologians call the already not yet, that God has spoken in Jesus Christ, that he is calling out of us who we're created to be, that his mission's being fulfilled, that freedom is happening, good news is being preached to the poor, and yet we don't see it in its fullness, quite yet. That's where the Christian life is so difficult. We live in that tension. God has set us free and yet we don't see that freedom. God has healed us and yet we don't see that healing. God has proclaimed good news to the poor and yet there are a lot of people that their economic reality is very poor. What do we do with that? The word of God is never just preached to inspire us. It is preached so that we can join it. It is preached so that we can participate in that future world that has broken in now because of Jesus. In the time of Jesus, there was this this fever for end time stuff, for what would happen when the world would end. Eschatological fever is what some people call it. That there was this like belief that, man, something's gonna happen soon. And there were all these different messiahs that rose up and said, the end is coming, so listen to me. I have the plan for the end. It was happening all over the place. People were hungry for it. The day of the Lord is coming and it'll be fulfilled in a specific way. If we think about this passage in relation to Nehemiah, In Nehemiah, people were parched for God's word. They were longing for God's law. They are standing at the water gate, which is symbolism. They're thirsty for God's word, for God to come. He spoke, reminding them of their identity. And then in the world that Jesus is in, the people are hungry. When is God going to put things right? They're thirsty. When is the world gonna be restored? When is Israel gonna be restored to who we're created to be? And notice the difference in response of the two groups. The people in Nehemiah are convicted. They cry. There was a great altar call. The congregation was receptive. They wanted to respond. With Jesus in Nazareth, the people respond by kicking him out of his hometown. They're not convicted. They don't respond with weeping and then rejoicing. They're not ready for it. It's too much for them. They can't handle the conviction. They were parched for the word of God, but not the word of God from the carpenter's son, from the unlikely one who grew up in our neighborhood. No, not from the kid we watched grow up. I think this challenges us in how we are to respond to the word of God. Are we willing to hear God's word and see God's image in the most unlikely places? Are we willing to look at the places that are unexpected? Are we listening for God's voice? I I think back to the prophet um, Elijah when he heard, he was listening for God in the thunder and in the earthquake and in the winds, and yet God speaks in the still small voice. In what ways are we attuning our ear to the unexpected and where does it lead us? All right, so what is, these are nice stories. Where is this leading us? Where does this take us? Well, notice the emphases in these passages. The word of God is preached and we're told three things. In Nehemiah, we're told, go your way after the word is preached. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions of them for those who nothing is prepared. Okay, that's what we hear in Nehemiah. In 1 Corinthians, we hear God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior member that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. And then in Luke, we hear, he has anointed me, Jesus, 
to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the release of the captives and the recovery of the sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free. Do you notice a theme here? The word always goes out and it always goes out to the least likely. It's always good news to the poor. It's always good news to those who haven't heard, those who don't have a celebration. The gospel is water when we're parched. And our participation, the gospel becomes wine for those who have not even heard of the celebration. The word of the Lord leads us to repentance, but also to rejoicing. This is good news. I had this thought this week. What if the church were a wine sending people? Think about that for a minute. What if Christians sent wine door to door instead of salvation tracks? I'm being silly, but what if our good news was as much a celebration as it was a warning? God has spoken to his people. What if Christians were known as the ones who honored the hidden people more than the showy people? What if Christians were known as the people who were constantly trying to divest our own power and lift others up? Even if that power keeps coming back to us over and over again, we keep trying to jettison it for the sake of others. Who is that person on your team at work who just always gets overlooked? Who is that person? Who is the student who is not so popular at school, who needs to be uplifted? Who's the sales rep who no one wants to work with? (laughs) How might their life change if they were shown the good news of God's love in small ways? But that starts with us, the church. How might our church, our parish, our congregation live in this kind of way. Now, I am amazed at how our church lives this out now. I want to say that. I've never been part of a community that is so interested in one another and asking about one another, that is not consumer focused and just trying to get our own needs met, but is actually genuinely interested in the other people in the community. I've never been part of a church like that before. I'm amazed. And I wanna challenge us because um, we, over the next few weeks, several of us have gotten together and have tried to create a plan of ways that we can intentionally invite more of our community um, into our community, more of our neighborhood into our community, more of the people of Nashville into our church. And, and so we're hoping that as the church grows over time, that that experience that we're experiencing, that self-giving community that's present here um, will be experienced by more people. But that may be challenging for us (laughs) because as our church grows, there will be people in the church who you want to avoid conversation with, okay? There will be people in the church who will be awkward. I I don't wanna say this in any kind of prophetic way. This is just reality. There will be people who hurt people and that's in hurt feelings in ways. We can't practice this in the world loving our enemies, loving others, if we can't practice it in the local community here. It's important to remind ourselves of these realities because these are not the principles by which the world operates. Looking after the other, <laughs> looking after those who are, um, have been marginalized, the lesser parts of the body. You will leave here today and you'll go back into a world which still tells you that you need to be a dominator. <laughs> You need to be an influence grabber. You need to be a fighter. That's just what you have to do, the world will say. Christianity is always a different and a better story than that. Amen.
Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that you have called us to be a people of a better way. We thank you for your word, that you are the God who speaks, speaks in a parched land, that you are water for our thirsty souls. Lord, as we gather week after week at the water gate, as we gather and we say, Lord, speak to our hearts, we thank you that you are always faithful, that your word is always moving. Thank you that your final word once and for all was spoken in your son, Jesus Christ, who came into our world. God, you didn't have to speak to us. You certainly didn't have to come close to us. And yet you chose not to give up on us in our sin, but to draw near. I pray that as we are formed in that way, Lord, that we would respond with good news, that we would respond with recognizing this is a celebration. Lord, may we be the wine senders to people who celebrate this good news in the world. We trust you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.